for all of you that uh, kept track with us this past week and read it by yourselves at home. It probably didn't sound like that in your head when you read it, right? Thanks, Allie. You can read good. <laughs> or you can read well. So, yeah. Let me pray for our time and we'll start. Father, we thank you for your word, for all of the things that you say to us that just give us clarity about what it means to be close to you. And so I pray that as we take time here just to sit in your word, that we would be challenged, that we would be reminded that as you define what the family of God is, you don't do so to keep us at arm's length, but you do it to draw us in. And so I pray that you would draw us in today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, unless you've lived under a rock or in a house with no TV or Wi-Fi in the course of the past six months, uh, there's a name that I'll say that should be very uh, familiar to you. Um, and that name is Rachel Dolezal, right? You all know who that is. For those of you all that don't know, um, she was a Caucasian woman that grew up and, be, and she became enamored with African-American uh, uh, culture. So she went to HBCU, studied African-American history, became the president of a few groups up there. She was even the president of the NAACP. Well, what took place was she, she tanned her skin, she changed her hair, and she started to tell people that she was black. And for years, she lived, and people thought that she was black until it all came out on Twitter one day. And so then what took place was uh, folks like to call this group of folks black Twitter. They came up, and people started to make her a hashtag, and they lobbed all types of uh, questions at her right, um, all types of, of, of things uh, to basically say, wait a minute, though it may look like you're this from the outside, though you may claim to be close to this culture, you are not black. Regardless of what you do or what you try to do, you won't be black. And what they did was they started to define what blackness was with the hopes of excluding her. A definition of a group to tell her, you are not in this group, you do not belong to this group. And that's the, the, the world that we live in. We live in a world where as people make definitions, so often they make them in order to exclude folks or to tell folks that they're not part of this group. Here in Atlanta, folks say, well, I live in Atlanta. And, and folks may say, well, 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 I grew up here. And folks that live here say, you didn't. You grew up in Stone Mountain. You're not from here. Right? With the West End and West View, right? If you live in West View, don't say that you live in West End because folks in the West End will say, you're not in West End. West End is this. I'm from the great country of Texas, and we take, see, see, right? We take pride in where we're from. Don't say that you're from there if you're not from there. There's a group of folks that are from there. Our family is defined by who's in, but we make the definition so that you know who's not in. We do it all of the time. And when somebody or some group gets very popular, a definition's needed. Popularity only increases this because what takes place is as soon as somebody starts to become popular and famous, everybody wants to claim that they're close. Everybody wants to be on the inside because they think that if they can be on the inside that they can get some of what takes place. Uh, this past week, I uh, listened to an interview and a, a guy that's getting ready to put together uh, Mike Tyson's biopic um, said that he sat and talked to him. And Mike Tyson said, man, for the first time, I'm happy. And the, the guy said, why? 
And Mike's like, because I don't have any money. And what, what takes place is he's like, man, there would be times where guys would want to be so close and they'd fight over my dry cleaning. And I didn't know it, but I had $16,000 in my pocket. And so they would fight over who was going to take my, my clothes so that, they, they, so that they could have some of my money. So Mike felt this need to, all right, I have to define who's a part of my family so that I can keep the wrong folks out. Definitions so often are used for exclusion. So as we think about Jesus Christ, as we think about the family of God that he starts to define, as we think of somebody who is by far the most polarizing person to live on the face of the earth, what takes place is there's going to be a definition that, that needs to take place. In the day and age that we live in, Christians have been the most notorious about defining who's out. That there's certain groups that sit and they, and they start to define what it means to be a Christian or what it means to be close to God so narrowly that it seems like that their aim is trying to exclude as many folks as they can. And with multiple definitions, with a bunch of groups that speak as if they're the authority on what it means to be close to Jesus, what takes place is you're going to get multiple wrong definitions about what it means to be close to Jesus. And it's a big deal because what takes place is if somebody is propagating the wrong definition of what it means to be close to God, then what takes place is that people that are far from him will think that they're close. And folks that should be close and folks that should be drawn to him may run because the picture that they hear of what Christ is like is not what he's like. Jesus is not here now to speak audibly about what it means to be a part of his family, what it means to be close to him. But just because he's not here to speak audibly, it doesn't mean that he can't speak clearly. And he does speak clearly through his word. That's why we're taking the rest of the year to go through the gospel of Mark so that you and I would know what it really means to be close to Jesus and what it means to be close to God. And Jesus speaks very, very clearly in our text for the day. So if you would, turn with me to Mark chapter 3, and we'll start in verse 7. And as you uh, turn there, uh, I just want to catch us up. Right now in the life of Christ, what takes place is Jesus is popular. Everywhere that he goes, there are these crowds that want to be around him. They want to be close to him. If he was in our day and age, his Twitter account would have a blue little check mark next to it. Huffington Post and TMZ would be trying to write things on him. Bravo would try to come at him to create a reality show of him. And it's like, like this is what it's like. He can't go anywhere without people clamoring for his time and attention. And they just want to be around him. They, they just want to be close to him. And so as Jesus defines what it means to be close to him, what we're going to see is him interacting with four groups of people. His fans, followers, family, and his Pharisees, or and the Pharisees. And what we're going to see is Jesus is going to make distinctions so that we know, all right, who is it that he sees is close to him and who is it that's not close to him? So the very first thing that we have to see, the very first thing that we have to grasp en route to trying to find out what it means to be close to Jesus is this truth. Being around Jesus is not the same thing as being with Jesus. Being around Jesus is not the same thing as being with Jesus. Just because somebody is close and in your presence, it doesn't mean that you're together. And uh, we'll start here in Verse 7, and we'll look how Jesus in, in, interacts with his fan base. And it starts off and says this. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. And a great crowd followed from 
Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and uh, Jumia and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. Jesus leaves and this big crowd comes from the north, from the south, from the east and the west. Everybody's coming to try to be around Jesus. Why? When they heard or when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he healed many, so that all who had diseases passed around him to touch him. So Jesus comes, he sits and he withdraws. And what takes place is there's this huge crowd and everybody from this crowd is trying to get around him. And it's clear Jesus' aim is not just to be in this big crowd. You know that somebody doesn't want to be someplace when they already make uh, plans of how they're going to leave before they get there. My wife and I do this all the time. Well, not all the time, but sometimes. Like, hey, we're going to go at 845, go and get the car ready, start driving off, and I'm just going to run and hop in and we'll leave and make our break. Jesus is around this crowd of folks. And look. This is a crowd that heard that he healed folks. His concern is, I can't be around this crowd because in them trying to get what they want from me, they'll crush me. Isn't that ironic that you have this group of folks, as they look at Christ, he's just this means to an end. And they're sick. And so long as they can get close enough to touch him, they're okay with trampling him just so that they can get what they need. And they push and they push and they go in and they, they're uh, getting ready to crush him. And Jesus is planning his exit. This is a group of folks that they're drawn to Jesus primarily because of all of the things that he can do. Verse 8, when they heard of the many things that he did, their first thought was, well, if he did it for somebody else, then he can do it for me. And that's what he's useful for. That's what he's good for. For his fan base, for those that just come to Jesus for the things that they want, Jesus can be very, very useful. But you'll miss out on why he he came here. Jesus was just a means to an end. Um, In 1997, uh, Princess Diana died. And so what took place was the paparazzi was so bad that they had to send out a decoy car to drive and to leave. And then at about 12, her real car drove and left out, and the driver crashed. By the time the cops get to the scene, what takes place is they have to arrest seven paparazzi Because instead of calling the police and calling for help, they're taking pictures. Because in their mind, Princess Diana was good for a picture. If I could get a picture, then I could get what I really want from her, money. So if she's dead or alive, it really doesn't matter. She's just a means to an end. She's just a way for me to get what I want. And there is a group of people that... at as it relates to proximity, they are close to Jesus and they want to be close and they want to seek Him. But for what? So that they can get what they want from Him. This is a group of people that their desire to be close to Jesus fluctuates with their needs. When I need something from Him that I can't take care of myself, my devotion and passion to seek Him and to draw near to Him increases. And I do all of the right things to be in in His presence. But when my life is good and when things are well, it really doesn't matter if He's dead or alive. I have no desire to draw near to Him. This is us so often. When I need something from Jesus that I know that I can't do myself, when my marriage is a train wreck, 
when I lose my job, when I don't have money, when friendships aren't what they should be, I go to him and I go hard after him just so that he can fix what's wrong. But then as soon as it's fixed, whatever devotion and passion that I had for him leaves. That a fan of Christ is somebody that just wants to give Jesus their problems and nothing more. They're content with being around him. And being around him is not the same thing as being with him. You can be in the same place and not be with somebody. I I told my wife this past week about a time that me and Andre 3000, three stacks, we had lunch together. So I said, yeah, we went and we, we, we were in the same place. We ate. We talked. We laughed, we joked, we made eye contact, we took pictures. We're best friends. Then she starts to ask some of the details, and I was like, well, we did sit across from one another, but I was at one table and he was at the next one. We both talked, but we really didn't get around to talking to one another. We laughed at the same time, but it wasn't at the same thing because I really couldn't hear what he talked about. We took pictures. Well, I took a picture like this with him in the background. <laughs> and I think we made eye contact, but he had on glasses, so I'm not sure. But I'm sure that we did, that we locked eyes. Me and Dre are like this. That's what I call him, Dre, because we're... <laughs> and Chandra says, wait, 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 John. You had lunch around him. You didn't have lunch with him. That's not the same thing. Just because you were in the same place, it doesn't mean that you were with him. Being around Jesus is not the same thing as being with Jesus. If the sum total and the high point of your interaction with Jesus always takes place in a crowd or with a group of folks, you may very well find yourselves around Jesus, but not with him. If conferences or Sunday morning is the only time that you feel like he speaks to you, you may just be around him and not with him. There's a world of difference. And you can be around Jesus and he can be very, very useful. But it'll be a waste of what it is that he really came for. Being around him is not the same thing as being with him. Look here at verse 13, and it says this, and he went up on the mountain and called to him, listen, those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, that they might very first thing, that they might be with him, that they would know him, that Jesus would not just be somebody and they would not just be faces in a crowd, but so that they would be with him and they would know him and he would speak personally, intentionally, and specifically to all of them. And as a result of this knowledge, he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. And then it goes on, and in all four of the Gospels, what takes place is you see the names of 12 men. Jesus, this man who the crowds are chasing after, forsakes the popularity of the crowd, and in his mission to change the world, finds 12 men. He calls them out. And and that's the very first distinction that we see. Being with Jesus is not about you chasing him. It's about him calling you. And what he does is he calls these 12 men. And he doesn't first call them to action, to do things. So many of us think that Christianity is surrounded around our activity, ministry, things that I do for God. But Jesus calls these men and the very first thing that he calls them to is intimacy. I want you to be here. 
be with me. Reminiscent of the call that God himself made to Israel and the 12 tribes and the scripture that we read is that, that when God called these 12 tribes, they started to become boastful and prideful because they felt like God called me. And so God has to come in and say, wait, wait, listen. Don't think that I called you because you were all that. I actually called you not because you were the cream of the crop, but because you were the bottom of the barrel. So that when I use you to do what I plan on doing in the world, it's going to be clear that you didn't do it, I did. So God's call of us is something that makes us incredibly grateful, but it makes us humble as well. And you look at the list of these guys, and the one thing that you see is that there was nothing special about any one of these guys. Every one of the guys on this list were supremely unimpressive. And Jesus, being a picture of God, shows us this clear picture that this is what God does. God always calls the least likely candidates to do His work. And then he gives them an impossible task. These are guys that are used to catching fish. And Jesus says, all right, I called you. I want you to be with me because I'm going to send you out uh, and you're going to cast out demons. So where are these guys going to go to get the strength to do the very thing that God has called them to do? They have to get it from God. They have to know that the same one that called me is going to be the one that equips me and gives me the power that I need to do his work. Ministry always flows from intimacy with Jesus. We fail miserably when we get that backwards and try to do all of this stuff for him instead of just being with him. So Christ says, I want you to be with me. He calls them out of this bunch. And the task that he gives them to to be with him. To preach this good news, to share about him. And to cast out demons, to demonstrate his power. This is going to be a call that changes the trajectory of their whole life. Jesus' fans just want to give him their problems and nothing less. When Jesus calls people to follow him, he requires their their whole life and nothing less. It's not, I'm going to give Jesus my problems and nothing more, because he's asking for my whole life and nothing less. And that's what it means to be with Jesus. My Christianity, the devotion that I have to the Lord, is not just an add-on. It's not just something that I do in my spare time, but it dictates and determines every facet of my life. Their whole lives changed as a result of God's call. Jesus doesn't just want to come and make us better versions of what we are. Jesus plans on coming and making us completely different people than we we once were. And he wants to change our whole lives so that he can use our whole lives. And he does it with folks that are with him. Being around Jesus is not the same thing as being with Jesus. And so what goes on is that first distinction is painted and it's clear as day. And then as we go on through the rest of the story, what takes place is there are two groups of people that seem like they should be closest to him. There were two groups that were around him or God's things the most. His family, up to this point, they had been around Jesus more than anybody else in the face of the earth. Like his family, his mom, his brothers and his sisters. The Pharisees, they had been around God's word more than anybody else. 
So if there's anybody that should have been advocates for what Jesus was doing here on this earth, it should have been the people that were around him the most. In the rest of this story, what takes place is we have this. Interactions with his family in between that is sandwiched this, um, this statement and warning against the Pharisees, folks that were close to, 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 to him. And Christ's main point in all of this is trying to show us that to be around Christ is not the same thing as being with him because to be around Jesus and not to be with Jesus is actually to be against Jesus. To be close to him and not to be with him is actually to be an enemy of him. And when I say that, it sounds like a strong word, and it is a strong word, but it's needed. Yeah, listen, an enemy is somebody that lives or acts in active opposition to something or someone. You don't have to be intentional to be an enemy. You can be actively opposed to somebody by mistake. So it's like there's times where, um, uh, not just times where I, have you ever found yourself on your way to somewhere or, or, or to do something, you have this goal, and somebody gets in your way and they start to talk to you. And they can really, really talk. And they can just go. And you're trying to be polite and nice, but you're like, I really have to go. I know you don't mean this, but you are actively standing in the way of what I have to do. If you don't know what that's like, then you're the person that does it. Stop. Stop. So, listen. You don't have to be intentionally against somebody to be against them. You can unintentionally get in the way of what they're trying to do. There's two ways to oppose the will of God. It, it, uh, there's at least two ways. Ignorance. I just really didn't know that I did this. Or arrogance. I'm sure I'm trying to get in your way. I'm trying to stop you. And so here we see both of those things. And the very first one that we see it is it starts with his family. In verse 20, it says this, then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. Jesus is spending so much time with these folks that he can't eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him for they were saying, he is out of his mind. So Jesus is out there preaching to all of these crowds. He's so caught up with what goes on. They are so demanding of him that he can't eat. And his family says, Man, somebody get Jesus. He's out there. He's not eating. He's crazy. He's out of his mind. And they seized him or they tried to seize him. That they looked at him and they said, if you keep down this path, it's going to be the end of you. It's going to kill you. It's a group of people that their highest aim, the thing that they would live for, is this concept of self-preservation. And that's going to butt heads with a man who came to the world to sacrifice himself. So what takes place is, they're not actively trying to oppose the will of God, but what they are saying is, Jesus, we want something for you. We want you to live a safe life. You're part of our family. We want you to grow old with us. We don't want you to die. We want your safety. And Jesus says, that's not going to work. Because I didn't come here to be safe. I came here to give my life for 
sinners, not just on the cross, but with the way that I lived my whole life. And I'm calling all of those that say they believe in me to do the same thing. And the assessment from somebody that doesn't know what it is that Christ lived for is always going to be that he's crazy. It's always going to be that he's out of his mind. A life characterized by sacrifice never makes sense to people that only live for self-preservation. There was, um, there was a show that came on TV years ago, 24. Um, I caught on to the show very, very late. So by the time that I caught on to it, the show was done. But I was so hooked. So I watched all eight seasons in three and a half months, right? So what that means was there, there was a whole lot that I had to give up. However, there is somebody that is among your midst right now that is a part of this church who he, he felt that same draw that I did and he watched all eight seasons in two weeks. So I did the math, and what takes place is in a week, there's about 336, in two weeks, there's about 336 hours for him to watch eight seasons in two weeks, 144 hours, 40% of his time went to this. In a two-week span, you'll sleep. 112 hours. So what he did, he gave up sleep, hygiene, food, time with his wife, all of that. And his wife would come and approach him and say, you're crazy. You're sacrificing all of this just for this show. And what he would say is, you don't get this show. You don't get it. Jesus' family looks at him as he's giving his life in the midst of these crowds of folks that want nothing uh, from him but meeting their needs. And he spends time, years, sacrifices tons to make sure that they know and his family looks and they say, he's crazy. He's out of his mind. Somebody get him and put them on this path. And they oppose God's will by trying to distract him from what it is that he should set his mind on. You and I that are in here that walk with Christ, you know the feeling. There's folks here that are a part of this church that you've been called crazy by your family because of the things that you've done. There's... Um, Folks here that, 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 that moved to be a, a part of this, this, this church a few months ago. And uh, my wife and I went out with, with, with them on their boat a few weeks back. And they drove us to where they used to live. People call where they used to live fake heaven. And, and so for years, what takes place? Years. They try to share the gospel and all of what God has done. And folks that are up there that... Have it all, say, I really, ah, that's fine, that's fine, that's fine, that's, that's fine. From the outside, their lives looked much like the rest of the lives that were theirs. But then they sold their house and moved right up the street here to be in a place where they feel like God had called me to do his work and I want to follow. And family members that they had say things like, you're out of your mind. I'm not going to come visit. I'm not going to come down. It just doesn't make sense. There was a girl here this past week, and she's getting ready to go to Bangladesh for two years. And she asked us as a church to sit in and pray for her. And I was here with her and with her mom, and her mom was here, and it was just clear that she's like, yeah, she's going to go, but I don't know. It doesn't make sense to me why somebody would sacrifice all the comforts, all the things that we have here. 
It's because they found something greater to live for. And Jesus comes, and He's the supreme model. Sacrifice doesn't look like sacrifice to the person who sees the joy of something better. Jesus comes, models that very, very clearly to the point where His own family doesn't get Him. And so as we read this and as we think about the type of man that he, 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 he is, it forces us to ask the question, if my life always makes sense to the people that would claim to be outside of Christianity, if every financial decision and relationship and friendship and move, and purchase, if all of that makes sense to those that are on the outside, and they would look at your life and say, yeah, I do the exact same thing, then we have to sit and ask ourselves, am I really following Jesus? This is not some plea to, like, go and leave now and sell all that you have, but it is a plea to just say, does my life make sense? What is it that I live for? So Jesus lives this way. His family looks at him and says, this doesn't make sense at all. And they try to seize him to distract them from his purpose. We can be close to Jesus, but against him in the way that we live our lives. Do our lives distract others from knowing what Jesus is like and what God had called us to do. That's what it looks like to oppose God out of ignorance. But then he goes on and he shows what opposition looks like out of arrogance. And he gives or he puts down what is probably one of the most confusing and scariest passages that you'll read in the Bible, this charge about the unforgivable sin. So what I'm going to do is try to explain this briefly as we talk about uh, these Pharisees. And it goes on, it says this, verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, listen, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. So now you, you have a group of folks that aren't accidentally opposing Jesus, but they come and they're spreading out to the rest of the crowd, trying to sway people from putting their trust in him and saying, Jesus is empowered by Satan. And this is what I love about the Bible, is that it's like, it's real, right? Jesus is there. They don't talk right to him. They say, hey, y'all, he is empowered by Satan, and that's the way that he casts out these Demons, verse 23 says this, and he called them to him and said to them in parable. They come and they share all of this, and Jesus says, God, guys, guys, come here, come here. There's two things that he's going to say about this charge. The very first thing is he's going to say, that's, that's just stupid. And then he's going to go on and say, but it's serious. Look here at verse 23. It, it, he says this. Read this in the most sarcastic way that you can. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom can't stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. Jesus steps back and says, hey, guys, hey, guys. Guys, come here. So you're saying, I am empowered by Satan, and that's the way that I cast out Satan. He's like, that's stupid. Here's why it's so dumb. If he was in our, our, our day and age, he would draw him in and say, hey, guys. It's kind of like in the five heartbeats. They were a great band. 
They were on their way to do great things. And what took place? Eddie Kane. <laughs> Eddie Kane came in and he messed things up and they started fighting. And when they started fighting, it unraveled and they weren't successful. So he says, so you mean to tell me that now I'm from Satan and I'm going to fight against Satan? If that's true, we would unravel like the five heartbeats, like the temptations, like every other boy band that you can think of. It's stupid. It doesn't make sense that Satan for thousands of years would have a group of folks or a group of demons that were on one accord in opposing God's plan and now all of a sudden things would fall apart really doesn't make sense. So then he goes on in verse 27 and says this, but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. So what he says is, listen, the only way that you can go into somebody's house and take their stuff without them retaliating is if you're stronger. You've seen Friday. Debo goes up and he takes his chain and nobody comes back because he's stronger. And so Christ says this, who's stronger than Satan? God. So it's obvious that I came from God. I didn't come from Satan. He's like, guys, that's stupid. Peter, man, did you hear this? Saying I'm from Satan. It's stupid. And he wants us to know that that's not the case. 28 goes on and says this, truly I say to you, when Jesus says truly, it doesn't mean that all of the rest of the stuff that he said was a lie because he can't lie. He says truly so that he draws us in so that we know what he's going to say is important. Truly, I say to you, listen, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. If you grew up in church like me, and you read this verse at some point in time, it scared the mess out of you, right? You, you walked around and felt, did I do that? Have I done it? Because if I have, there's no hope for me. Now this verse, what Christ says here, it's meant to show us the seriousness of the charge that they did, but at the end of the day, right, I'll bring the comfort first. The, uh, what this means, right? we look at this, and it's not that Jesus is definitely saying that these guys committed what is the unforgivable sin. This is more of a warning than a condemnation. Whatever it is that they've done, they've come dangerously close in attributing the work of Christ, uh, the work of God through Christ, to the work of Satan. Um, I just want to make sure that I'm very, very clear of, uh, about this. So for them to say that Jesus has a demon in spite of all the evidence that, that has gone on. These first three chapters have been laid out to, prevent this, to, pre, uh, to present this convincing case that Jesus is in fact the Son of God, empowered by God. And now you have this group of people in direct, intentional uh, opposition to what Christ has done. They're attributing His power not to God, but to Satan. And so what takes place is he gives this warning of a sin that's unforgivable, and there's lots of scholars that have thoughts about what this is, but let me try to explain as best as I can from the text what I believe this to be. That it's, if somebody were to attribute the Spirit's power inside of Jesus to Satan, then what takes place is 
they would never go to Jesus for forgiveness of sins. If they think Jesus is in fact, like not just who he says he is, but he is a demonic agent of Satan, then in that sense, there would never be any forgiveness of sin because there would never be repentance from sin in Christ. Does that make sense? And so what he's saying is you're walking on very dangerous ground if the Spirit of God that's meant to come into the world to convict the world of sin, to press on your conscience so that you don't just see your sin, but you sorrow for your sin to the point where you're driven to repentance uh, towards God. If you look at all of that and feel all of that and come to the conclusion that's not God, that's Satan, then you'll never be drawn by the same Spirit to turn to Christ and to repent of sin. And so he says, your claim is stupid, but it's serious. And so here's what I want to do for us here in this room. The person that has committed this sin or has this belief, what would take place is a passage like this wouldn't necessarily concern or frighten them in the sense that uh, if you leave out of these doors and a crazy man walks by and he gives you, like, watch out, the sky's falling. You're really not concerned. You're not going to duck and cover because you look and you say, well, you're not trustworthy. I really have no reason to be concerned that I may be in danger. But if you read this, and there is a concern in your heart, and you found yourself in the place where you're like, did I commit this sin? Then that's pretty clear evidence that you haven't. Because those that did wouldn't be concerned. So if you're here and you feel like, I don't know what to do, this is scary, the best thing that you can do is what God calls all people to do when faced with a, a knowledge of their sin. And it's to repent of our sin and turn to Christ and be encouraged that a Pharisee by the name of Paul, who likely believed or felt lots of the same thing that, that these guys did, he was converted and he became a Christian and he wrote half of your New Testament. So, uh, we spent some time there just because that's a passage that's confusing and tricky and I hope that if anything, it would lead you to a place where right now you can sit and repent of your sins and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. So his main point in here is to, to be around Christ is not the same thing as being with Christ. Because those that were the closest to him, both his family and the Pharisees, those who should have known better, were in the most direct opposition to him by distracting him from why he came here to the earth or by trying to restrain him from fulfilling the very things that God had called us to do. Though both of these groups had a head start, they ended up running in the wrong direction. And then it closes off with Jesus providing a definition of what it really means to be close to him. Verse 31 says this, And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside they sent to him, and they called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around them, he said, here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he, excuse me, is my brother and my sister and my mother. What takes place is Jesus is in this room with this crowd. His family comes. And as you see here in the text, 
There's a group of folks that are inside at his feet listening to what Jesus says. And then you have a group of people that are outside demanding that Jesus do something for them. And so his family on the outside comes and they call him. They view themselves as those, Jesus has an obligation to do what I need him to do. And the crowd that's on the inside, they respect the obligation that Jesus has to his family. So they interrupt him as he talks. He says, hey, 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 your mom and dad, or your mom and brothers are all out there. And so they're willing to pause so that Jesus could go outside and take care of them. And what Jesus does is he doesn't address the fact that a family should have obligations on those that are part of their family. He doesn't demean his earthly family. He raises the bar of his spiritual family. He doesn't address the obligation that he has towards family or that family has towards him. Paul's going to go on later and say that if a man doesn't take care of his family, he's worse than somebody that's not a Christian. But what he does say is this. Wait, 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 wait. I do have an obligation to my family, but I want to redefine my family. The family is not just those that I have blood ties with, but closeness to Jesus looks like obedience to to God. The family of God is marked by obedience to God. We live in a world where when they create definitions, it's for the purpose of exclusion. As Jesus creates this definition, it's not to exclude folks. It's to include them. Jesus creates this and says this is the case so that anybody can know that they have access to Him. If you can be described by that word in verse 35, whoever, then you can be a part of the family of God. There's nobody that falls outside of that. There's nobody that's done things that have been too wrong. There's nobody that's been in opposition to Christ in such a way that they can't be redeemed by what he says right here. In that crowd are folks that were part of his fan base. Those that just wanted things from him. They just wanted to give him their problems. And those came. The funny thing is, as you go through the rest of the Bible, at the start of the book of Acts, Jesus' family that was uh, against them, that lived this life, and their only thought of what to live for was preserving themselves, his family's up there. You look in the, the Bible, the book of James, Jesus' brother. The book of Jude, written by Jesus' brother. And both of them start off that book with James, not the brother of Jesus, but James, the servant of our Lord Jesus. We come into God's family. We're marked as a part of God's family by the way that we obey and submit to God's will. And God's will, John 6, that you would believe in Jesus, the one that he sent. Jesus comes, and as he tells folks how to be a part of God's kingdom and to do God's word, repent and believe. Mark intentionally leaves this, the will of God, broad and ambiguous so that you and I don't try to narrow the will of God into one part of our lives. But to obey God, to submit to God's agenda, means this. That the will of God dictates and determines all of my life. If there's any part of your life that you are holding on to yourself, 
if there's any part of your life that you're not submitting to the Lord Jesus and you're saying, I want to run this, I want to do this, then you're not doing the will of God. The will of God is that we would submit our whole lives to this great God. And what hope do people like us have to be able to do that? Because even as I say these words, my heart is convicted by certain parts of my life that I just hold on to and I don't trust God with those things. The beauty in all of this is that this Jesus is not just trying to take people that are far from him and turn them into employees or folks that will work for him. The beauty of this is that this passage didn't stop with Jesus calling followers. This passage ends with Jesus taking you and I that are in this room who have intentionally or arrogantly been foes of God and he doesn't just make us friends but he invites us to be family and the beauty of family is that there are these bonds that can't be broken the beauty of adopted family here in the U.S. do you know that if you have kids of your own you can write them out of your will if you have adopted kids, you cannot write them out of your will. They're there. Regardless of how they perform, regardless of what they do, you cannot write them out of your will. And so when the Bible talks about we've been made part of God's family and brought in, not because we were good or because we were the cream of the crop, but we've been brought in because Jesus looked at those of us that were far and he called us to bring us in so that we would be with him. And in order for us to be with him, somebody had to pay for all of the years that we were around him, but not with him and we were against him. And so what he does is he sets this life here on earth on a trajectory to go to the cross. So that, so that as he makes this invitation to family, you and I would never think to exclude our names from the whoever. But we would say, whoever can talk about me, and if that's me, then I can turn from my sin right now and repent and trust and feel this sense of security that I have in the fact that I've been made a part of Jesus' family. And in the same way that I've been called to him, he's provided me with the things that I need to faithfully do his will, to faithfully give up every part of my life that I want to hold on to. And the most beautiful thing about this passage is it doesn't just provide us with access on how it is that we're made a part of God's family, but it gives us a sense of assurance. And the assurance that the Bible offers, the only assurance that we have is the present faithfulness and obedience that God's Spirit works in us. So to the person that maybe you may be in here living in active disobedience and rebellion towards God, you may still be one of his kids but all that disobedience does is it robs you of the assurance that that's true. But if we obey, if we wake up each morning, not just with thoughts of how do we fulfill our own agenda, but we are reminded of the fact that Jesus has called us to be close to him and those that are with him he requires their whole life and nothing more. We can be reminded that in the same way that he's called us and brought us in, he's made us family so we don't have to worry about our position once we are in. We're his 
And though we're weak, we're always His. Closeness to Jesus looks like obedience to God. And those that obey have a great assurance and a great boldness. And our prayer is that our church life would be marked by these things. That we would find ourselves as a group of folks that say, hey, this, this is what we live for. This is what we hold one another uh, uh, accountable to. Let's pray. Father, um, I pray that those of us that have been so comfortable with living lives around you um, would transition into living with you, Father. I pray that none of us would stay away, but we would read your word and accept it as an invitation um, to be drawn close. So, Father, help us um, to be reminded that you call us, Father. We don't work for our position with you. We don't earn it, but you call us through your word, Lord. And your word says that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And so I pray that um, as we've heard your word, that we wouldn't think it was for somebody else, but we would submit our whole lives to you, Father. If we've walked with you, but find ourselves in a place where we don't trust that you'll take care of us with decisions that we have to make, I pray that you would give us the strength to submit those things to you. And take comfort in the fact that those that are with you will never be put to shame. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.